From 11FS, I'm Ross Gallagher and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you the US proposed new fintech charter, Chinese regulators are scared of Ant Financial, and why can't Brits talk about money? All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with the good people from Microsoft Azure. We are coming to you live from our 11FS offices this week in WeWork Oldgate in a rather sunny London town. My name is Ross Gallagher, Principal Consultant at 11FS, and I'm joined by my colleagues and co-hosts, David Breer and Sarah Kishansky. How are you guys doing today, David? Pretty good. Like I've, uh, This is literally Monday for me, so I've been out of the office for three days, which it managed to pretty much piss it down for three of those days. So uh, <laughs> living in Norwich is awesome, but apparently when I take time off, it chucks it down, which is annoying. Is it worth <laughs> clarifying that when this goes out, it'll be Monday for everybody? Wow, that's weird. Like in the future. <laughs> Freaks uh, me out, man. So we do record on Thursdays. Uh, Sarah, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I'm enjoying not being the one uh, trying to hold this whole thing together for <laughs> once. I rather, I rather suspect you would do um, a better job, but hey ho, we'll see how we go. And as ever, we are not alone. We are joined in the room by some fantastic guests. We have Diana Paredes, CEO of Suede Labs. How are you doing, Diana? Yeah, super. Enjoying the sun. So, and I have a beer, so everything's good. <laughs> what more could you want? And we have Dr. Sean Lewin, a.k.a. The Reg Doctor, uh, Client Delivery Director at RegTech Associates. Sean, how are you doing? I'm great, and it's great to be here. My first, it's your first uh, show. FinTech Insider show. So I've been an avid listener for a while, so it's great to be in the room. It's great to have you. We're super excited. The Reg Doctor. I've got to ask. That's the coolest title ever. Like, uh, we were talking about it in the office earlier, and I was like, does she just call herself the... No, you actually are Doctor of Regs. This is yeah. amazing. So yeah. can, you, can, many you, of us around. can you just explain the context for that one a little bit? Because this isn't like Dr. Dre calling himself a doctor. You actually are a doctor, right? Yeah, I have a PhD, which studied regulatory change. You must have been so, one of the first people to do that as well, right? I must have been, yeah. Pretty cool. So, yeah. Welcome. Thank you. Any collaborations with Eminem? Uh, not not currently planned, <laughs> but open to offers. If, if, he moves in, if he moves into the reg tech space. Yeah, absolutely. Just never know. All right, on that note, let's get started with this week's news, which has a very American feel to the first half. So where else could we start but with the uh, US Charter for FinTech? So this story comes from Reuters and is to do with the US Treasury on Tuesday backing the creation of a federal charter for financial technology firms in what I suppose is being called a boon for online and peer-to-peer lenders that have long complained the current state-by-state licensing regime is both expensive and outdated. So, I mean, charter runs to 222 pages. Sarah, I think (laughs) as someone who has read it all and I think in the process proved that your one of your many superpowers is your attention span. <laughs> Do you want to maybe talk to us about this? So there's, just to clarify, there's, there's two things. The US Treasury wrote a 222-page report, which is the fourth report in their series, which basically the Trump administration told them to like sort things out, by which they meant here are some principles, make sure everything aligns to it, otherwise get rid of the rest. And it's part of their drive to reduce regulation. I'm going to keep this really short because there are two reg tech experts in the room. This, so one of the things they recommended in that report was that something called the um, the FinTech Charter, or the, 
that that's what's been dubbed, which the OCC, which is another regulator, has been trying to push through for two years. Um, they recommended they be allowed to finally get that going. So just after the Treasury report came out, a second announcement came from the OCC, which was like, hey, guys, we're open for business. So anybody who is non-deposit taking a fintech in the US can now apply for one of these licenses. But I'm sure you guys, Sean's nodding at me, I'm sure you have much more insight on this than me. Yeah, it's really it's a really interesting move because um, more broadly around the world, we've seen a lot of regulators pushing the, the fintech and innovation agenda. And one of the things that's held the US back from some of these other approaches like regulatory sandboxes is the fragmentation of the regulatory framework in the US. And so this is a really interesting move to try and overcome some of those some of those issues. I think what my concern would be is that with all of this promotion of innovation by by the regulators and, and the Treasury, um, we also need to make sure the risks are also managed and the risk to consumer protection that that this might engender. And without that state focus as well as the federal focus, I think you know there could well be some tension. And the other comment that I would make is that I think this is ob- is a really good example of where regulation um, becomes a political football. So, you know, it's very much Trump's deregulation agenda that's driving this, um, but that's not the only instance of kind of promoting fintech and innovation being used for political reasons. You know, I don't want to bring up the B word, but I will. Um, I think in the, in the UK, the Brexit agenda is also pushing the F you know is partly pushing the FCA's real drive around promotion of, of fintech and innovation so I think we could see it as part of that general trend what is this actually saying though so is it is it so to the point where we're saying state to state regulation is going to be aligned in a greater fashion to allow fintechs to move across the entirety of the US. Yeah, there's this, this is specific to peer-to-peer lenders, no? So it's well, it's specific to peer-to-peer lenders um, and payments companies. Basically, the so there's 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 so many different things. If you, I mean, I spent I read that report, so you guys don't have to. Um, basically, <laughs> the report is a huge list of recommendations, and what Sean was touching on is a lot of these recommendations are very good for business, but they're not necessarily very good for consumers. They strip away a lot of the rules which are in place to protect consumers. Some of the the what, what uh, Diana's uh, referring to is that it's so complicated, but basically. Basically, the charter applies to uh, organizations that do some element of banking, and they define that as basically lending payments or deposit taking, um, which but for the first round, they're saying, actually, that's we're not going to let deposit takers in and play to start with, which basically, as Diana suggested, brings it back to peer-to-peer lenders. Some of the payments guys, although in the US, the payments licenses are easier to get. Another of the recommendations in the original report was that um, the states get their act together and make sure that their um, their their regulations are on a par with each other. Because right now, even the states don't agree. So if the states don't agree with each other, how can the US possibly agree with the UK or China or whoever it wants to talk to? No, it's, it's quite positive in a way, but it's a fine line right between the interests of consumers and what really that means uh, as an innovator. And the the reality is that, for example, for us as a tech company, I feel it for, for my fintech friends in, in the US, it's actually very different like and very difficult to do innovation over there. Uh, you can even be sued by a state you've never stepped a foot on just because they have a completely different approach to regulation than they do in the state you're, you've incorporated. So I would say that anything that can kind of help homogenize 
organize the way you do business uh, is actually positive. Um, when it comes, I mean, it's interesting because, for example, peer-to-peer lending in the UK has a very interesting story, right? So we started with, you know, the funding circles and a lot of fintech companies that were doing that uh, without being regulated for a very long time. And then um, actually there was a lot of lobbying by them to, you know, Treasury and Number 10 to get regulations in place once their businesses had actually uh, departed and, and done really well. So I would say that anything that, you know, reduces the barriers to entry is obviously quite positive and this sounds like something um, that it will do but you have to keep in mind the consumers of course because that's quite a concern if not. I, I guess this this first step isn't really hugely beneficial to the big organizations but you to actually think a simplification of all of the regulatory environment from a US perspective would be beneficial to everybody anyway you know Wells Fargo other big banking organizations in the US like have literally tens of thousands of people just looking at regulation like this is one of the re- major reasons why competition cannot really properly flourish out there in the way that it has done in the UK do you think this is going to make a big change then or is this a is this the beginning because I, I guess everything else that I've seen from the Trump administration seems to be pro big company rather than creating competition and allowing small companies to flourish but is this the first sign of something else I think it's it's a really interesting change because you know this kind of heralds a change in the whole approach to financial regulation in the US or it could do Um, I think there will be quite a lot well a huge amount of opposition to this from the incumbent banks because you know as much as they say they want a level playing field well obviously they don't they don't want that that competition for them them, yeah so I think there'll be a real tension between the two that will work itself out and I have you know I think it's too early to call how that will it does feel quite early doesn't it because you've got the independent community Community Bankers of America, among many other groups, that so they've come out saying that such a charter may allow fintech firms to circumvent tough banking rules like that. We had that in the UK like two, three years ago. I just and rolled my eyes massively. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to explain that. The impact was extraordinary. No, I, I, I think that the the summary of this for me is like, don't get too excited. It's a really good first step. But I think that the problem is not letting the OCC open. The, the other thing is you got to remember, so the states are fighting each other. The banks are fighting the states. The regulators are fighting each other. There's, so the OCC and the CFTC and the, the SEC, and there's so many different financial regulators in the US. They're all bickering amongst themselves. So for somebody... I, I mean, the, the idea of this is that the federal government comes, right, pipe down, children, this is what we're doing. How you actually make that happen, to me, just feels like a headache I would never in a million years want to have. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but is this not similar to the European Commission sort of setting out PSD2? And, you know, then it's down to different countries to, you know, like, the US is such a big yeah. place, I'm getting lots of people shaking their heads. No, because, Go on the, the- because the way that the European Union does that is enshrined in law and it's it's about maximum harmonization and there is none of that legal framework within the US to do that yeah. in terms of regulation across the US so i would i'd say they're very two very different beasts yeah but it is quite interesting that it's the occ that's leading this as well because obviously there is to your point there's a lot of different regulatory bodies in the u.s that have been kind of fighting about who would have the fintech hat for a long time and every time i've gone to to the u.s and and discussed with regulators there i think it hasn't really been clear who would win and the fact that this is something coming out of the occ is very clear they're the ones going, going to be driving this fintech support environment i think it's super positive because for the past two years the u.s hasn't really been able to compete in any playing field with what other regulators around the world have been doing 
with the Trump administration, uh, what's also happened is that a lot of the regulators in these different entities have actually left the regulatory bodies. So there was very, very little uh, you know, manpower to even look at fintech or be interested in fintech. And we've been hearing about deregulation for a long time that effectively has not really happened. Uh, and we haven't heard anything of this is the first that we actually have an actual, um, you know, result for, which is pretty cool. Does this open the doors for non-US fintechs to have more of a potential impact in the US? So we've we've heard a lot about you know N twenty six and Revolut and uh, you know Tom Blomfield wants a billion customers. Like, does this open up the potential for you know a longer term market entry? Theoretically, yes, but there is no way that the OCC is going to let the first firm that they give that special national bank charter be not a US one. So theoretically, Revolut and N twenty six are perfectly welcome to apply for that charter. This is this is me. This is I don't know this for a fact, but I would bet money on the U.S. administration not allowing the first company to win that license. Being a fintech, that said, if there was a U.S. fintech that managed to get a license and they would effectively partner, so I don't know. For example, if Cabbage went for one of these licenses, they're they're a big player, they're a lender, uh, friends of the show, and, and they won it. There's no reason they couldn't then partner with like N26, and N26 could offer some products, and Cabbage could offer, and they could have a license sharing agreement, which is kind of what already happens a lot in the US. A lot of the fintechs have a partner who's a bank, and they ride on their license. So it's possible, but I wouldn't say that's going to be the first thing that we see. I actually I would be more bullish on that because the the reality for some of these companies in in Europe is that they go for funding in the US, right? Mm-hmm. And so they go for big funding in the US in a way that you can't really compare to to Europe. So the first thing that a SVC fund usually asks you to do is to incorporate in America. And so the replicability of business models here in Europe into the US becomes much more possible when you can actually go from state to state, again, for peer-to-peer and for, you know, mm-hmm. payments and the apps effectively that you can be doing for consumers. But it's, uh, I would say that actually it could be a big stepping stone for, for some of the models here to go into America. So it feels like a step in the right direction, but not the end of sort of to finished article, confirmed. right? <laughs> We're going to come back to this one over and over and over again, I guarantee Sounds it. good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's moving the conversation along to kind of talking about laying the driveway, but not actually laying the driveway. Is it? It's it's that it's that admission first step of any sort of ten step is that yeah. a problem, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, oh, yeah, so yeah. it's like regulation in the US seems to be a problem. Yeah, yeah. Let's see what we can do. I love that. Regulators Anonymous. It's that first meeting. <laughs> Our assistant producer Pat just spat his beer that. out. So. Um... <laughs> All right, I'm going to move us on. This next story comes from Quartz, and it's um, staying with fintech, but looking at Apple. So Apple is apparently becoming a formidable fintech company. Apple Pay transactions tripled from a year earlier, now topping $1 So Steve Cook, Apple CEO Tim Cook, said that was more than square and exceeded mobile transactions uh, via PayPal. So, I mean, this is pretty impressive stuff. And just before we started recording, um, Apple's new valuation, they have just become the first company to reach a value of $1 trillion. Trillion. This is some pretty impressive uh, stats from, from Apple's part, right? 
I just got a new Apple laptop, so I feel like I've just tipped them over that edge. <laughs> you were it. Yeah. yeah, like I like just the final bit, you know. I find this really weird because I still just don't see so many people using Apple Pay like I, at all. I just I also think that I, this is me in my brain and I'm like, yeah, these stats don't make any sense. And I was looking for more evidence and I couldn't find it. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, David, you pay for everything on Apple Pay. So you could be contributing like 500,000 of those payments. So it's like one billion <laughs> payments. That doesn't tell me kind of how many users there are. I can't find how many. Yeah, Apple Pay have 227 million users by 2020, but you don't know how many people are using it every day versus how many people are using it every now and again. And then that's how you actually drive ubiquity and habit forming. And we talked about this, David. Like, I'm, I know, we talked about it. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> sorry, but sure. a, a billion there's, transactions is huge, right? But there's it's no huge. comparison there on these stats that we've got in front of us to any kind of normal debit or credit card payments, right? So What's it's going to be a drop the, in the ocean compared to mm, those. But the, so um, the 227 million users that Sarah um, just referenced, that's more than Android and Samsung combined. So that is pretty impressive. Yeah. It seems like a weird Android diss, doesn't it? it like does. I, I feel if Simon was here, if he'd Simon probably was here, he'd be furious. defend his people. But, uh, <laughs> oh, I think I think the other interesting thing is as well is that I don't. What I can't tell from this as well is like whether it's Apple Pay transactions, whether that includes everybody who buys something on iTunes. Like every time I buy a song or a an app or pay for something on iTunes, is that an Apple Pay transaction? Well, in which case, meh. They've been doing that for a long time. It's not that I disagree. I think that they are they are obviously processing a huge number of transactions, but these numbers feel like they're they're just kind of like headline grabbing. Um, well, like yeah. I said, the like being in the US a couple of weeks ago, and I'll be out there next week, so I'll kind of you know second test of this one. Nobody's using Apple Pay out there at all because it's just not a thing. Like there's no there's almost no POS terminals that actually accept it in any way, shape, or form beyond the airports. Um, so I'm just super skeptical of this in terms of um you know whether like you say actually a billion sounds like a really big number until you put it against all the other transactions that are happening that are in the you know multi-trillions or something ridiculous so um i think getting getting some more stats like you say sarah seeing what percentage of the, the overall transactions as you furiously try and type this into google and finding out no no i mean i just my, my point is as well is that all of that aside that doesn't make it a formidable fintech company to me because it's pro- it's not even processing i mean it's processing the payments but it's not it's just payments like it's the same as a debit card you could say that like the oberta who make the debit cards process a million transactions because it's kind of the it's not the actual handling of the money i just think to be a formidable fintech company i I need more evidence i'm very skeptical okay so let's i agree i think it's more about perception being written than reality in many ways and so it's it's headline grabbing to say that but i'm I'm not sure what it really means well let's do so the the sort of scaremongering bit when it comes to um established incumbents so is this um again does this speak to the sort of trend of gaffer becoming banks moving into the financial services space because i think what a lot of um, people might be thinking is that this is just the beginning. I get that. I I am a I'm a big believer in that. I don't believe that any of the gaffers or the fang well actually fangs different. Okay, let's go gaffer. Um, are going to become a bank in the sense that they're going to become a licensed bank and abide by all those terrible rules we just mentioned above. Because I just think, as 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 Liz Lumley once said, if they were going to do it, they'd have done it already. It's just too much bloody hassle. So why bother? The last bit was definitely Liz. The first one was me. Shout out to Liz. <laughs> um, but but the, but in terms of um, in terms of this kind of like the sort of a pseudo banking, if you like. So actually, what we talk about a lot with Alipay, you know, actually you're not really a bank, but you're doing almost everything a bank is. 
I I do buy that to a certain extent, and I think a lot of that is is to do with the the, the user experience and the simplicity of it. Um, I, I think I think Apple particularly though, I think they they've positioned themselves to um, edge their bets. Like they, uh, it's been publicly um, talked about now that they had a deal in place to buy Discover. So you know, if the banks hadn't played nicely, if they hadn't allowed them into it and to you know clip their ticket on the payments that were kind of going through, they would have bought somebody and done it anyway. So I, I actually think the 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 argument against needing to do um, manage the regulatory side of things, manage the banking side of being a bank, then you know I think the argument for just buying somebody and letting them run that thing for you, you know, particularly outside of the US, is relatively straightforward, right? Particularly you know with things like passporting, like there would be nothing to stop Apple being in a situation where they bought some. Uh, you know, very, very small European bank and was able then to do whatever they needed to do given passporting across across Europe, really. So I, I think the thing that I keep coming back to, if I'm honest with you, is I don't get why Apple keep focusing on the US so much, given the lack of um, connectivity and the adoption of these types of things from a, like I say, there's almost no pauses that they accept mobile payments or contactless payments. So uh, trying to innovate in a space where there isn't the, uh, the rails to do it for, from a payments perspective just seems like, well, no wonder it's not really taking off. Yeah, I think the the Apple focusing on the US thing is because it is their biggest market by such a long way. And you have to look at an awful lot of markets that Google, uh, sorry, Android and Google and Samsung are focusing on uh, where um, it's to do with money. To me, it's to do with cost, the cost of having an Apple device, cost of having that Apple ecosystem. So um, for to really get those users on board, to really get them to be kind of like effectively using as if That's they would use it. a bank they or whatever. They get hooked within an yeah, ecosystem, you, don't they? Yeah, and then you've got a Mac and an iPhone and an iPad and uh, what are those things you wear in your ears, Ross? AirPods. AirPods, yeah. Well, they're not soundproof, I can tell you that much. <laughs> we all know what Ross was listening to this afternoon. Um, <laughs> Let's it, leave that there. It, well, it was Dancing Queen by ABBA. <laughs> Just had to get that in there. It actually was. But sorry, my point being that that doesn't really work. I mean, it might work to a certain extent in the UK. I suspect it might work uh, to a small amount uh, to a certain extent in Australia. But Australia has a small population and the government really hates Apple. So why would they bother with that? Uh, you know, if you go over to the higher end Asian countries, places like Singapore, they're all addicted to Samsung. So I think uh, to me that answers that question. But um, in terms of driving behavior, I've... I've uh, we, that's, a, that's a blog post that's coming. We're working on it. <laughs> and, this wasn't um, me having a dig, Sarah. Like it's it's fine. Even if they even if they don't go down the the route of getting licensed and offering a sort of full suite of, of of banking products and services, do we think we'll continue to see this trend where they keep chipping away at the sort of profitable elements of? I think they'll banking. keep trying it. Like yeah. Google very much has a throw someone at the wall, see if it sticks, doesn't roll it back. I mean, Google is, I think, less embarrassed by things not working than Apple. If you look at all the different things they wrote, they had an insurance product they rolled out and pulled back before uh, Android Pay, before Google Pay, they had Android Pay and they had Google Wallet and they, oh, no, not work, try that again. So I think they'll keep trying it. Well, another US company that's um, making some nice inroads into the payment space, this time P2P payments is Zelle. So this story comes from Bank Innovation. Zelle has crossed 100 million transactions. So they're a US-based P2P payments network owned and operated by US banks, including Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase. Um, it's it's an interesting story. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, Sarah, and you came across what could probably be called an interesting anomaly about how this works. Do you want to... 
Oh, it's brilliant. So so basically Zelle would be 100 million transactions. Woohoo, look at us go. Like we're making a mark. And then somebody, not me, did some digging into the numbers and found out that most Zelle transactions don't actually leave the sender's bank. So more than 70% of transfers are between two customers who have accounts at the same institution. Uh, so each time a bank customer sends money through Zelle, the sending bank is charged, which means banks are paying Zelle for transactions to move within their own systems. Like from account to account. Ouch. Which I thought was hysterically funny. I think that might be quite niche. But um, <laughs> my point being that I don't think it necessarily, I think what it means is that Zelle isn't doing as well as perhaps Zelle says it is. I was so, um, and this just might be my um, my ignorance, but I was wondering if, if people ever actually really used Zelle. I mean, like Venmo's a, Venmo's a verb. Like Venmo it. Do people use Zelle in the same way? I don't know. I, I, this is the thing. <laughs> Both Diana and Sean are like, yeah, no, that's nothing. I think, uh, so. <laughs> I think what I saw is that they use them in, in different ways. Yeah. So I think the point is it's very much a case of I believe I believe this to be true, and I'm sure Nina Mahanti or another American I know will yell at me, but I believe that Venmo is like, we'll go out for lunch and it's 100 quid and we'll just ping the person who paid 20 quid via Venmo. Your mum, when she wants to send you money at college, will zell it. Is the kind of understanding I have. Why? Why are you laughing at me? Because you just said your mum on a podcast. <laughs> oh. Right, you're supposed to be the adult today, Ross. For goodness sake, somebody's oh. mother trying to give them money at college will use Zell. Is that better? So, so just just on this, though, I so, thought the first one was great. So, a hundred million transactions is equated to twenty-eight billion. So, just kind of rolling up slightly, then. So, if we're saying. Apple did a billion transactions. Are we saying Apple have done $280 billion in payments? If you say so, David, yes, my math is not good. Times by 10, I can usually deal with. But uh, but yeah, that's impressive. So does that give us a little bit greater ooh to the numbers that Apple were kind of proclaiming earlier on? Again, it depends. I don't know how Apple's back-end systems work. I don't know how you know who they're paying to process those payments. Like, is Apple Pay... When you use Apple Pay, do you link a card to it or is it a bank account? So they're paying fees to Visa or MasterCard. They're paying Interchange. They're also paying the merchants who are accepting that. So uh, I don't know. I mean, all of this stuff. So when you think about like peer-to-peer and what Apple is doing and Zelle is doing, they're kind of doing a bit of what banks usually do. Mm -hmm. And margins in banking are not always very good, right? So what they're not releasing here is really numbers that explain what the margins are. If you knew the margins, then you're talking about business, but anything else, I would say, could be fluff. Yes. We yeah, have no I idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think it's another case of that, like, yay, numbers. And the, those of us around the table who spend our lives dissecting numbers are like, well, this, this is only one number. We need at least 17 yeah. different numbers to, to work out. At least out the margin they're making on the transactions, right? Then you're talking about real real money or, or not, right? Well, well so uh, according to CNN, Apple gets 15 cents for every $100 in Apple Pay transactions, right? So 15, 5, 0, 1, 5? 1, 5. Uh, so if they get 15 cents for every $100, like based on, what did I say a second ago? Uh, it's like, that's like a, a penny and a half. Yeah, yeah, sure. But based on the fact of uh, $280 billion in payments, that's all right, right? You know, for essentially something that isn't your, you know, the, and, it, and it gets to a very similar situation that we've actually started to see in uh, in China, right? You know, the the volume of payments that are going through things like Apple Pay, um, 
Alipay, sorry, you know, the regulator is definitely going to have to kind of stand in at some point, because essentially, if if somebody can make such a significant amount of money where my brain can't compute quite yet, <laughs> and I'm hoping somebody else has done the maths on their laptop, nobody has, I'm going to continue, um, of actually how much money they're making. That's just crazy, really. I'm not sure, right? Because, for example, in, in banking, so your business is to like, you know, lend and, and get your savings in. And so the margin is actually more on three, three percent, two and a half percent which is obviously quite a lot more than whatever Apple is doing on, on these transactions. Yeah. So whether that is a viable business in the long term for Apple to be sustaining versus a bank doing it, I'm not sure. I mean, I think even aside from that, if we're talking about, Ross and I were talking about this earlier, about behaviours, right? So actually, we, the numbers are interesting, but what you really want to know if you're going to change the face of, you know, you know it's, we all see this all the time, don't we? You can digitalize, digitize anything you like, but it's not actually digitalized until people are actually, until behaviors are changed, until like internal processes are changed. So um, if, if the only people using Zelle are people paying their rent and it's just like in the UK, we would use faster payments and that's not a behavioral change. If people are using Zenmo and it becomes a verb, then that is a behavioral change and that is scarier. So if people are just using Apple Pay in the same way they would use a contactless card or a debit card, it's not really behavioral change. What is behavioral change is that they begin to associate Apple with payments and then when they want a loan they go to Apple because Apple does their payments yeah. or Apple they want to I don't, I don't know maybe Apple one day will do loans or credit cards but they would definitely need to be regulated if they're yeah. about well, to yeah. do loans <laughs> yeah, yeah. no no but let me talk about buying, buying Discover well then yeah. it becomes an Apple Discover yeah. credit card right so I think I think it's, it's the, the minutiae is really interesting to us but I think in terms of what's actually going to change the banking industry or change the way that things are done is how people start to use things differently and in the US Venmo has done that Zelle has yet Mm, not sure and, and that comparison with the uk for me is is actually key because um yes these numbers are like fun to chew over and i you know we've we've had a good time but i think the reality is that the Say it equivalent, like you mean it ross <laughs> no, I, I, I do I, I, the, the 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 equivalent in the uk though to to something like zelle venmo is, is pay m and the reality is PayM hasn't taken off because the need isn't there with faster payments. What about Monzo Me? Because sure. you can Monzo Me. Like we say in the office, I don't know if anybody else says that, maybe it's just us, we're a little bubble. Like, <laughs> Monzo Me the money. And then Ross goes, no, I want to Snapchat you it or whatever Snapchat. it is. Snapchat. No, Square Cash. You want I, a Square I mean, Cash in it. And then we're just like... Simon's not here again to have a, a, a Jack Dorsey-themed love-in. But, but I mean, look, the reality is, I mean, my only point on all this is a more direct comparison because you've got something like Zelle is owned by the big banks. It's integrated within their existing sort of digital offering. The more natural comparison is um, is PayM. And, and it just hasn't taken off purely yeah. because the faster payments network is so good. You don't need it. So I've just found a stat. So uh, Apple Pay accounts for 0.4% of the total revenue made by Apple this year. It That's got to be a reasonably significant uh, view. So at, it would need to get to 451 billion of transactions to make it 1% of their expected sales over the last, yeah, over the last year. Uh, I know there's too much stats in this one why don't we move on <laughs> let's move on I'm not sure when this when this show turned into like a, a maths exam um our next we've got a doctor on I'm just trying to show off like, uh... that's so true I did qualitative research <laughs> <laughs> now you tell him damn it right I am going to move this on our next story comes from Business Wire and is about Steady so Steady's launched to serve the squeezed American economy so I guess um a comparison to what we have here would be something like Aslo from BBVA, but um, it's the income building platform for the build your own workforce, helping people create financial stability and take charge of their future. 
Um, I know. <laughs> Where have we heard that before? Uh, right? Well, show me. Sorry, Ross, finish and then I'll rant. So no, I mean, look, they've launched their app. It, Turn it's the mic off towards, quickly. Yeah, it's geared towards um, the US gig economy, hence the comparison I made to Aslo. And yeah, I mean, Sarah, I'm just going to hand it over. Sarah's rant. Now. <laughs> I mean, the first thing is BYO workforce. To me, I was like, well, you bring your own workforce to the... Like, well, how does that work? Do you I just love that. It's accumulate like RSVP, BYOW. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, what it actually is, is um, it's a platform for people who do multiple jobs, who work in what, as you said, the gig economy, to find new ways of earning money. So basically, you, you get this. It's not really it's not really an app in terms of like money management. It's basically you, you download the app and then it gives you like stuff that helps, helps in uh, inverted commas, sorry, in speech marks, you, you do get more work. So you can like find, so say, I don't know, 11FS is looking for um, a freelance designer for half a day. It would be advertised on there and you can like find it in the app and go, okay, well, I want to do, there's a job for me or, or you can, you know, loads of other people, it says small businesses, medium businesses, the hottest startups, including 40 gig economy players, you can find work from them. You can like learn from your peers. I hate this kind of stuff, like monitor. So like who else who wants to learn from their peers where they're getting the but best how is jobs? that different from task rabbit though well i think the idea is that you can then also like access benefits and stuff i don't know if task rabbit enables you to do that so you can also be like okay so if you're a self-employed xyz you're an uber driver here's insurance for you or um here's a pension for a delivery rider and then basically the idea is that eventually you'll actually it'll actually start to integrate to proper financial products and you'll be able to build up some credit through it but it's boggling it's i don't necessarily think it's a bad idea i think it's just one of those things where they've thrown everything at it and they're not quite sure what they want to be yet yeah so i'm looking on their on their home page <laughs> sean, is, sean is gonna be even more skeptical than me i love I please do I, I just the whole thing about this even being necessary makes my blood boil <laughs> <laughs> as a sociologist the fact that we we're in this place where people's work lives are so precarious that they need this kind of thing is actually that's actually all I can say about it before I go off on a a real political rant so I'm gonna stop (laughs) have another drink of beer we'll maybe pick this one up later so it seems quite interesting it seems to be taking like a social media and sort of localizing it within the gig economy so um, I'm looking at their um, their homepage and apart from their sort of hero sort of tagline being build your income build your life which you know we can talk about again um it's about build <laughs> your income pain so, or the faces yeah. around the table so quickly find and apply for extra income opportunities based on your location interest and availability see the work other steady members are picking up to build their income that's what i mean like okay so ross got a job so i should get a job <laughs> like and it's not fair he's job, got a job right? That seems unnecessary. I mean, it is really a a take on modern slavery, right? I think that's that's how I feel about all of this. I was about to say something totally inappropriate, but I'll save that for you. I mean, the the, the point Ross is making, I think, is it's very similar to this now in the app called Even, which is being Mm. used by Walmart, and it's basically exactly as Sean says: these people are paid so little that they cannot manage their finances in an appropriate way. They cannot expect to have enough money coming in every month to be able to afford to buy food, heat their place, pay rent, clothe their children, whatever it is. It's actually targeting that market that maybe we shouldn't be building. Maybe apps will help them in the short term. Maybe we should actually just introduce a minimum wage in America. You know. Time for a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives 
adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS. At 11FS, we build truly digital products and services for clients big and small, and we're hiring. If you want to play a part in shaping the future of financial services, head over to 11FS.com and browse our vacancies. Now, on with the show. So our next story comes from the Wall Street Journal with uh, a rather attention-grabbing headline, Jack Ma's giant financial startup is shaking the Chinese banking system. So Ant Financial is now the world's biggest fintech firm. There's some stats here that genuinely blew my mind. So it handled more payments last year than MasterCard. Um, It controls the world's largest money market fund. Tens of millions of people have received loans. This online payments platform completed more than $8 trillion of transactions in 2017. And that's more than twice Germany's GDP. So more than 620 million people use Alipay. And the Chinese government are concerned about its scale, obviously, and are trying to limit its activity. So it's prevented its credit scoring system. And the vice governor of China's central bank recently warned that some influential payment institutions shouldn't think of themselves as too big to be regulated. What do we think of this one? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is so many things to break down when you're talking about China, surely. Um, <laughs> I won't go into all of them right now. Um <laughs> But the the interesting thing about so China the Chinese government has tried to crack down on these guys before they 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 sort of uh, I can't remember who it was I think it was uh, WeChat was doing a, a payment a new payment mechanism and the Chinese government said you can't do any payments with QR codes and then six months later they're like actually you can do payments with QR codes because we don't have a better system so that to me is the is the biggest um, conundrum here is that the Chinese government is kind of aware of how big these giants are um, but also at the same time knows it can't restrict them completely because there's nothing to take their place so if you look at we talked about it on the After Dark show last week but the Chinese peer-to-peer lending uh, industry which got completely out of control partly that's because nobody else was lending to small businesses so somebody has to fill that gap and the Chinese government and the the treasury and the central bank are kind of aware that they can't do it themselves the interesting thing for me as well is not only are they doing all this consumer facing stuff but they're also doing an awful lot of infrastructure for banks so Ping An uh, and Financial they all have sort of not necessarily white label products but they have uh, uh, sort of platforms and systems that the China's um, proper big you know old incumbent type banks are using as well so they have tentacles reaching far and wide and i think that only adds to the chinese government's fears but i don't know how they how they balance those fears with you know making sure that people have access to credit and also that they continue to build china as they want the world to perceive it as this modern forward thinking uh, you know technologically advanced economy again wouldn't want their job either there's a lot of jobs i don't want i said today <laughs> i think on that it goes it goes back to the, the the point earlier on as well about um about apple is they're building an ecosystem you can live your day-to-day life without you know you you can do that through amp financial i was gonna say you know i think it may be not just the chinese government who should be worried about this but to me this is a risk to the the stability of the financial the global financial system and i'm quite you know it surprises me that someone like the Basel committee isn't looking at this as a as a huge risk to financial stability you know and, and i'm not sure how relationships between BCBS and China work because they're not a member. Um, but, you know, this would certainly 
I would certainly be flagging this as a, you know, they're more than globally systemic, systemically important, I would have thought. Um, but I think yeah. that that's the advantage in a way because they're not part of BCBS to yeah. kind of say, well, we do whatever we want, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting because obviously when it comes to fintech and, and China and what can happen over there, almost anything goes, right? It's kind of the Wild West, so... It's strange though, isn't it? In an environment that's so restricted in so many ways, seemingly you can build a multi-trillion pound organization without really anybody stopping you to the point where you become critical infrastructure for potentially the whole globe. That's weird, right? I, like, I would some say people get in trouble for like graffitiing a train type thing. <laughs> of you know, course, yeah, yeah, but it's hats off to to them in a way, right? Because it's uh, it's quite impressive what they've been able to to achieve from an innovator's perspective. And the whole story of Alibaba is is really as as it's portrayed to be. I find it quite impressive because mm. uh, it's. Um, it gives you hope, if anything. <laughs> yeah, the, well, the, the story of, of, you know, Jack Ma and, and actually um, Alibaba and Ant Financial more broadly, like um, Chris Skinner, our, one of our non-executive directors, has spent a lot of time out there. And it's, it is an insane, uh, an insane rise, really, in terms of what they've done. So um, well done, them. We'll, I'm sure we'll see the rise and hopefully not the fall of this one too soon. I love that. So I guess on... Um on one note of how is it not regulated um, directly onto another. So this story comes from The Independent and is to do with um, RBS facing no action over the global restructuring group small business lending scandal as the bankers effectively get away with it again. So the city watchdog has confirmed that it has no power. And this just baffles me to take action against the bank's disgraced global restructuring group or GRG over its treatment of uh, small firms. So GRG, which operated between 2005 and 2013, has been accused of pushing firms into bankruptcy in order to maintain its own profits. I think what was interesting about this was what the FCA chief said afterwards. So he said, it's important to recognize that the business of GRG was largely unregulated and that the FCA's powers to take action in such circumstances, even where the mistreatment of customers has been identified and accepted, are very limited, went on to say that there were no reasonable prospects of success when it came to action against senior managers. I mean, what, where do you want to go Sean's there are, better than me. Honestly, there's hands up all over the table. Sean, I'm going to throw it to you. I actually find this really interesting because I, I drew a parallel with this case and the FX fixing and the libel fixing, which were also unregulated activities, and yet they've enforced under under their broad principles of conduct, right? So there are 11 business principles of conduct that they could well have brought to bear in this yeah. instance, and the, fa- and the fact that they haven't... Good number. We like 11 lists. That's good. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah, I, the fact that they haven't, I think, is, is very telling. And, I, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but this smacks of political pressure to me surely though if it doesn't fall under their jurisdiction it should fall under somebody's like criminal procedures uh, or something well only if there's law criminal law that that covers that right so you can't be convicted of a crime unless there's law that says that it's a crime but i would say wow. in, in general when you think about rbs and uh, in anything that they do i think they get the the pass because well, they are primarily like a political a, bank, right? Yeah. They basically yeah, were bailed out. And, yeah, exactly. And, and Brexit. So, 
I think also, the, 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 point, right. the, the interesting point to me is that I, the problem is that this is just a gaping hole. And um, I think it was James Hurley from The Telegraph who was like, this is a hole. It's been a hole for a really long time. And I was like, it's not a new hole. It's not like it's a tech-induced hole. It's just that nobody has regulated small business lending. Like, it's not covered by the FCA. It's not really covered, as far as I understand it, by the PRA. It's kind of like, well, nobody... There literally, as Sean was saying, there are no rules for this stuff. So, you know, the FCA can say, well, we can try and go after the senior managers, if you like. And it turns out that they were, like, not really very nice, but didn't do anything illegal. So, um, yeah, it's basically what they came up with there. But this is for the, the GRE, GRG group, which no longer operates. But, yeah, I think, for me, the biggest thing is, that, like, it's this huge gaping hole in regulation. And it's not what we were talking about earlier. It's not trying to regulate the forefront of innovation and peer-to-peer lending and, you know, how do we... Um, regulate Venmo and Zelle and new business models, it's how do we regulate small business lending? And I think it's not that difficult, right? Because they have treating customers fairly, which is a huge part of retail banking. And I think that, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'll caveat this comment with that. But there is an argument that small and medium enterprises could fit under treating a customer fairly, in which case they would have enforcement. Well, certainly when be you able look, to at, enforce. look so, at the at the way that the FCA treats SMEs in other aspects, so you look at the CMA, the open banking, yeah. the uh, account review they just did, so the, the the personal account, current account review, they they treated SMEs quite clearly as they sort of not lumped them in, but in a very similar category to retail customers. And yet here they're like, nah, no. I mean, I don't, think, I don't think you need to be a conspiracy theorist. So it's pretty clear in many ways, right? So the uh, RBS is the best funding in the street. And they will have, I guess, a pass on certain things as well. That's how I see it. And what sucks and shouldn't be ignored is the human story, right? Because yeah, if, you're, if, you're, if your business goes into bankruptcy, that probably ruins your life. Of the, course. the harm yeah. caused by this, you know, it's, it's well documented and, you know, and that's, a, that's really the fundamental reason behind regulation is to prevent people from being, have human, you know, prevent the human cost of the financial world. I mean, I've done a load of work on SMEs recently and I'll, one of the things I said but i stand by it is that sme owners who in many cases are the sme it is mm-hmm. them like exactly. you can say we treated the sme badly but actually the sme is just that one person so if you're treating that that business badly you're treating that person badly. yeah that's very true well very rbs true. has said they will take lessons um and i guess on that um customer lens let's absolutely hope that they do so i guess um some good news um so this story comes from city am uk fintech scores the global top spot for investment in the first half of 2018. Interestingly enough, uh, we spoke to Emily Nicole, technology reporter at CTAM, on this exact subject. So I wrote a story this week that I think is probably one of the most exciting stories I've written all year for fintech. And it was based on some data from KPMG's Pulse of Fintech report that showed that the UK attracted more investment into fintech than any other country in the whole world for the first half of the year. Um, It took in $16.1 $16.1 billion, which is quite a lot if you think that Asia as a whole only took in 16.8. So for the UK to take in that much is pretty crazy. Four of Europe's top 10 deals happened in the UK, which includes well-known ones that I'm sure all of you listening will know, which in, like uh, Revolut's 250 million raise, um, eToro raised 100 million, and Money Farm raised 54 million. Those are all some really, really big raises we've seen this year from UK startups and even London startups in particular, they're doing really well. I think as a whole, fintech in the UK is really, really growing, doing some really great things. And the fact that we can see from the data that 
fintech is still attracting such high levels of investment, even with all the geopolitical uncertainty. It's really cementing that the UK is a really good place to start a fintech startup. It's a really good place to grow your fintech startup and that people are still coming here and thinking of the UK as a really good place to put their money. Obviously, this is a trend that we think will continue. I mean, the UK has only really seen more and more money coming into fintech every year. So there's no real reason why it couldn't continue. Brexit has always been cited as a thing that people thought, well, you know, we're going to be getting less skills into the UK. Um, I remember that uh, Innovate Finance did a report a while ago showing that things really need to change on that front if we're going to be able to continue to remain a fintech centre in terms of attracting the talent we need. But from a money term point, it's obvious that investors, venture capitalists, um, angel investors, they all think of the UK as still a place where fintech can really flourish. Um, so I don't think that Brexit is really having a bad effect on fintech, at least for now. The, I mean, the other side of this story is, right, so when it comes to funding, is that if you think about all of the companies that have raised this money, uh, they're companies that have been around for a long time. So when you speak to VCs in, you know, in Europe and VCs that are actually investing in these companies, they will see that they're not investing in new startups, right? So they're not, yeah. you don't see venture this capital going into baby companies. Mm-hmm. They're going into companies that have already raised quite a lot of money that are still based in the UK and that are getting more money effectively. We're seeing of, later rounds. Right? Well, actually, it's later rounds, right? These are not baby rounds. Sorry. And they're raising money to leave the UK. So Revolut raised 250 million and they want to use it to expand internationally. Now that's not a diss on Revolut. That's, that's actually what side. they said they're going to do with it. So they're giving them the money to leave (laughs) Um, but I think also you know with a lot of political strategies behind this in terms of the tax breaks for funding startups all of that has been carefully thought through by the government in the face of Brexit so this actually shouldn't be a surprise to us because there's been a huge momentum behind promoting the UK as a a centre for fintech so it's great that we're number one but it's actually not a big surprise to me. And I, think I mean, of- but we're number one. It's not, I mean, when you look at China, China was nowhere in fintech a year ago, right? And so the fact that they have so much investment going their way, I think it's alarming bells in many ways. The US as well, right? So all of these other investments are catching up very quickly, I would say. Uh, the UK is kind of, you know, enjoying almost the work that's been done in fintech in this space for for the last few years but we should not rest on our laurels if we want to continue being the center for for fintech above all with the brexit background and a lot of these deals would have been organized in q4 so people forget this as well like so that money that was raised anywhere between like january and march almost certainly that deal was actually finalized last june or something so i think people when you look at it's the same goes for annual reports and people tend to look at these documents you have do have to bear in mind that actually this isn't just oh my goodness like revolut raised 250 50 million in like a month that's that's not how these deals work none of them work like no that. no it takes it takes a long time to build that i mean as a startup and a, a tech company ourselves we know very well some of the ceos of these companies and so we know how these things also work in the background and there is a reality here that when you speak to vc investors they will be telling you right so we will be investing officially still in the uk but really it will only be in deals that are you know series b c and, and plus so what you want is investors and funding to go for the young companies that get started in the uk that's where you really would get numbers that are interesting i was going to come in but i feel like that's a really worthy way to end that story <laughs> so i'm going to move us on so this next story comes from finextra and apparently brits are in the dark on open banking which 
doesn't really surprise me, but this YouGov survey found that over 75% of Brits don't know what open banking is. I'm going to throw out a quote from R11FS colleague and co-founder Jason Bates, which I quite liked. He said that Brits are also in the dark about HTTP. It doesn't mean that they don't use it every day. And you can add AC current, <laughs> NFC technology, what Visa and MasterCard actually do, and many others to that list. So what do we what do we think about this? Just because they don't know about it, does that mean they're not going to use open banking services? Oh, I hate that Jason's not here and he still <laughs> throws out smarter things. I mean, things. that was terrific. What Blast. a quote. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I completely agree with what he's saying, though. I think it's uh, they don't really need to understand it to necessarily benefit from it. I don't think that's necessarily meaning that anybody's actually benefiting from it as it stands at the moment in terms of where we are. I think there's a, a long, long, long road to go on that one. And I think the you know the the use cases that keep getting thrown around, the ways in which big organizations are using it is really just scratching the surface. So yeah. I'm hoping we'll see a lot more interesting things to come, but I, I just, you know, don't see it yet. To counter the point slightly, I think in this case I do agree that you don't need to understand how it works to to use it i use my mac every day and god knows how that works um but you do need to give consent with open banking and there's an awful lot of stuff that comes up and it's like will you let us do x y and z so i think there is uh, uh, there is a certain element there as well which is why it is perhaps even more important on this particular occasion that people do understand what it is and how it could benefit them because you try and do anything and we've been looking at a lot of these journeys um oh on pulse which is our platform which you can find um 11fspulse.com the netflix of fintech wow that was weirdly seamless I know. <laughs> just came to me um but the point that we look at these a lot of these journeys and then they're hard you know like you get do you agree to let us do this with your data do you agree to let us do this with it it's like kind of the new um accept cookies buttons from gdpr oh, i couldn't agree more yep. so i think that 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 doesn't add an extra element of complexity to this but i think generally speaking if you say to somebody do you want to aggregate your accounts in one place and have somebody tell you you're like going to get overdrawn they'll say yes but we can't just do that because they have to agree to it and that's the hurdle and on that as well i think sarah we spent a little bit of time this week sort of chatting about the the strong customer authentication element of the the regulatory technical standards and building on your cookies example that not only requires you to accept it up front it also prompts you at least once every 90 days to like re-accept um so what's that going to do for um sort of friction in journeys and all that sort of stuff but i i hate to bring up the sort of uber example but if you had tried to explain or describe the Uber concept to someone before it was actually there, they'd have been like, no, that's crazy. I don't want like, you know, Apple Maps or Google Maps trapping me, tracking me everywhere I go. And I don't want like to give all my information to Braintree and all that sort of stuff. But when, you know, the, the use case is there and it actually works, surely people will use it, right? But again, that's my point. Like nobody, Braintree, when you go onto Uber and you download Uber, you don't get a pop-up from Braintree saying, can we track your data? You don't get a pop-up from Google Maps saying, can we follow you? You don't get a pop-up from Uber saying... We're going to monitor your messages with the driver and check, you know, you're not saying rude things. But when you do things open banking, you do get those pop-ups, which is like, are you happy to let these people have access? Hang on, do Uber do that? Well, there there was a thing. There was a story where basically Uber was like saving all the messages you send to your Uber driver. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I'm just saying I don't use Uber. I'm just letting letting it be known that. I read that article and that was the end of that. I, I this think, is not an endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely not an endorsement. Um, I, I, think, yeah. I think it's a it's a barter, right? It's the same in way in any... Uh, look, the, the open banking thing that I always kind of come back to is like Wi-Fi in airports is like I will literally give up 
every piece of shred of information about me and all of my family to get decent Wi-Fi while I'm abroad. <laughs> um, and actually, if you can actually get that that barter right, then people really don't care with that stuff. That's right. No, um, and, and I think with open bank, even the people that are part of the working group on this thing sometimes don't really know where it's going to end, right? So the fact that you have part of the population that doesn't really get it, it's I think it's fine. Yeah, I think it's fine. I really do. I think it actually ties back in. I mean, what I'm saying, I think ties back into as what David was saying, when we see those use cases that are actually really valuable. Because right now there's nothing hugely valuable. I'm but like, yeah, I might do that, I might like, not. No one's, no one, like nothing's going to happen with open banking until it happens. And then that, use, and then that <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Then that it's use case profound. is going to be there. And then people like virality, word of mouth people, it's going to take off eventually. Well, it, it's sad though. It's like, um, we keep getting, like we're in this like bubble of like FinTech folk. It's like sure. Apple Pay's here. The world's going to change. Oh, nope. It's still the same. And like open banking's here. The world is going to change. Nope. So I, I guess maybe we're, you know, we're just at the edge of what, um, you know, the art of the potential actually is. And the reality of the situation is people just don't give a shit, really. I mean, we're um, really at MVP stage when it comes to open banking. So scratching the surface, like you put it before, is probably the best way to, to put it. And maybe one thing that will help explain why nobody knows about it is our next story, which comes from... Altfy. A, okay, <laughs> maybe one thing that will explain why people don't know what it is is our next story that comes from Altfy, which talks about Brits not being able to talk about money. So what is really interesting about this is the comparison. So 22% of British people are comfortable talking about their finances. So this is from a Starling survey. The comparisons are really interesting. So 61%, 67%, 46%, and 29% of the survey respondents were comfortable discussing their weight, political beliefs, mental health, and sex lives, respectively. So we're comfortably talking about all of those things, more comfortable than we are talking about money. Wow. Uh, Unless we're a millennial, in which case, like, we're telling everybody... <laughs> we literally we're run a podcast about money, so we're probably the outlier, with the exception <laughs> that proves the rule. But Yeah, but you're not talking about your own personal finances, aren't exactly. they? I, th I think this points to a generation, well, like a, a whole collection of people who are very comfortable to portray a life that they don't live quite frankly like actually if you look at so i'm surprised that 42 percent of millennials are happy to speak about money matters whereas only 10 percent of people over 55 are like i actually think it's a i would have expected the inverse That's because of that, really. we love a good moan about the generational inequality how, how honest are we so how honest if we say 42 percent of us being millennials like those of us who are born somewhere between like 1980 not millennial whatever yeah. I, 18 18 to 35 that's the rough rule of thumb that i'm running off at the moment oh bloody hell I've already 18 got to 35 no it's it's from 1980 onwards because i'm a millennial and fuck you if you tell me i'm not. <laughs> Wait, hang on, can I just say, so Anthony Marion, our, uh, who heads up our sponsorships, asked David earlier in the office, which I overheard and had a little chuckle to myself, whether he was around the last time England won the World Cup. <laughs> Literally, yeah. he, was, he was sitting sitting at my desk gloating about the other star on his French. So Anthony oh, is a bunch, yeah. Okay. Fucking Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> And I think I'm probably the oldest in the room. Back to my original point and stop discussing David's age. Sorry, this is obviously Sarah. a sore point. It actually was backing up what David was saying earlier. A lot of this stuff that you see on Instagram and Facebook and everyone's like, oh, look at me staying in this um, 
I don't know. I saw this story the other day. I was doing research for a pub quiz, so don't judge me. And it was like some uh, reality TV star saying he was staying in this $10,000 a night hotel room. And it turned out to be like a $500 a night hotel room. So when we say we're talking about our finances, are we being honest about it? Or are we saying, look, I can afford avocado on toast every day and a mortgage. Look at me go. When actually that's not necessarily true. So that's what I'd be intrigued to hear about. But I'm not sure if it's Brits or, or I mean, it's just in general. I think people, we are consumers and the way that, you know, we want people to perceive us is actually quite uh, it's just materialistic and that's just how it is right so well generally as a nation we're pretty much reserved on pretty much everything aren't we as uh, as kind of Brits yeah if you go into the US the US are way more open about talking about uh, like salaries yeah even salaries and stuff like that yeah yeah. uh, than than we are but well I know for example in banking you were not allowed to speak to your co-workers about your salaries in the UK in the UK so that's when I was in the industry, and uh, I think I'm not I'm not sure even where that came from, but it was just something that was like a no no. You were not did, allowed. Did to HR do it. tell you that at some point? It was, they, an was, there thing. An, was there no, an intervention? No, it was for real. No, no, there was no intervention, but it was kind of like this is something that we don't want people to be discussing. I, I think actually potentially more worrying, and this isn't this is slightly tangential again, but people don't really understand money and where it comes from and how it's produced and how it circulates in the economy, and everyone thinks the central bank creates all the money and the central bank doesn't create all the money the banks create all the like most of the money and i think you know money is also very money and it's you know (laughs) what what is quantitative easing and it and it is it is i think you know coming back to the point (laughs) coming back to the point you mentioned about financial literacy this complete lack of understanding of the money system I think I've is really I've always wondered about that you know because there's so much stuff that I learned just from being in banking and just like one on one of how to do finance and money yeah. and all of that and I was like why is that not in the curriculum at schools people should yeah. learn yeah. this stuff I, mean, it's I, think, quite, I, I think I missed the, the class on here's how you buy a house my, <laughs> my A-level <laughs> interest yeah. rate is yeah. I remember my yeah no I'm serious my A-level economics teacher Mr. Chubb saying every loan creates a deposit and it blew my mind but that is how money is created well done Mr Chubb so there was just on that on that exact note and we love economic teachers on this podcast I shout out to mine all the time Mrs Ellis just you know small shout out Um, wow like if you guys think your teachers are listening to this (laughs) Mrs Ellis is definitely listening (laughs) yeah alright shout out Mrs Ellis Mr Chubb Sarah sends out the link she's like the the point the point I was going to make was that there was a talking about you like a YouGov survey about six months ago, which was basically explaining to people how banking works. And it's like, you put your money into the bank, it doesn't stay there. The bank lends it to somebody else in order to make money. And like 90% of British people didn't know that that's how banking worked. And then 75% of those people, of that 90%, they said, well, we're not going to put our money in a bank anymore. And I was like, yeah, what? Like, (laughs) what are you going to do then? But it it is absolutely the sensible point here is the literacy and the education and the understanding of where money comes from, how it's managed and like what you should be doing with your own. Actually, an open dialogue is the only way forward on that. And it's important to open that. I I do think it's an interesting point to say that if if we're so concerned about talking about financial well-being, whether it's salary or whatever else it will be, then does this lead to um, increased sort of propensity of discrepancy in salaries? Actually, if, if you're being advised not to talk to your colleagues about <laughs> yeah. salaries, then actually is that because it's well, like, because there's some weird shit going down, so don't talk to your it, co- it colleagues. It totally does, right? And I think it's, if you think of, in Scandinavia, actually, a lot of people are very pro-speaking about money and salaries. And actually, you have some startups that even are very pro-publishing how much they pay different people. Mm. And I think that that's something that's quite healthy overall, because if not, the discrepancy can go anywhere. I think... 
particularly around the gender pay gap, right? Yeah, because, yeah. you know, you need transparency around that. And we, we could look to the public sector who have published bans of, of categories of people and... and Which, by the way, show massive gender inequality. Yeah, yeah. But at least you know where you are on a particular scale, you know. And, and, there, and I think being more transparent about that... It shouldn't be the responsibility of individual employees. It should be the responsibility of, of the people's pay, paying the salary. To, 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 to you know, follow on from that, Sean and I are kind of mind melded on that because exactly my thought as well was that kind of if you, I believe this is still the case and I, I may be wrong, but I believe that if you are, if you believe that you'll be discriminated against because of your gender in terms of pay, you have to go to HR and say, that person who I think does the same job as me is being paid more than me. Is that true? Yes or no? And then HR have to tell you the truth. But you have to do that. You have to go there and be like, that person who has, you know, X, the same number of ex- years of experience, the same job title as me is being paid differently to me. And you have to actually approach HR and, and posit that question. So that's a thing? You can actually do that? Or? You can do that. Oh. Um, and I believe that under British law, which was enacted something horrific, like 1970 something, it's only just, you know, people actually just picking up on it and actually starting to apply it. You actually have to do that though. That's interesting. Wow. But even like how many people are going to be comfortable going up to HR and going, um, so that person over there who has the same job title as me, they're, they're paid more than me, right? Like how, how whichever gender you are and, and, and whether that's gender or whether that's race or whether that's age yeah, or whatever yeah. it is, how comfortable are you going to be doing that? It's like the weirdest game of guess whoever. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to work my way through the department and figure out where I sit here. Yes or no, Steve? No? Okay, what about Fiona? And, and you can guarantee that, that in some larger businesses they'll come back with, well, you know, you're a public relations officer and they are a public relations uh, consultant. So those two things are different, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I wonder if it's like um, what's the thing with tennis you know the Hawkeye thing do you get three of those and then you get fired like if you get it wrong you, like, get, you get you get yeah you get three challenges and then you have to wait for the next financial yeah, year exactly to, to bring it up I think they should like gamify that thing it would be fun so no, I, yeah I mean this is no. this is obviously one um, particular example but I think for for any any number of um, of reasons opening up that conversation around um money is a is a positive thing i think um it'd be interesting to throw to our listeners at this point so why do you think money is such a hard topic to talk about please do tweet us your thoughts at fintech insiders we would absolutely love to hear them and okay so our and finally the story this week comes from the next web and just again i say with a just a lingering tone of despair this is related to john mcafee john mcafee will pay you a hundred thousand dollars if you get into his quote unquote unhackable crypto wallet so anyone who can break into the bitfi wallet the supposedly unhackable crypto storage device he's been parroting on about in social media of late you can keep the coins so you have to the coins have to be removed from the wallet to prove that you actually hacked successfully keep the coins and he'll give you 100k I, I, it, it almost feels unfair, like talking about this story. Like the man's clearly going through some sort of prolonged psychotic episode. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with this story. Someone help! I refuse to justify his comments with uh, any insight of my own. Do you know I, what? I second Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm going to call this one, and um, Sarah, I'm going to talk about something that I, I talked to you about a little bit earlier, which was, um, I think, a, a story that was posted to Finn by Barb McLean. I'm going way off script um, about someone. <laughs> the producers being, are going panic, panic. <laughs> Pull the plug <laughs> <laughs> about someone being blackmailed by snail mail. So an actual physical letter about a fabricated story of an affair. 
And for in order for the person, this an- anonymous blackmailer, not to share the details of this like salacious um, scandal with the person's wife and the friends and family, they needed to pay $15,500 in Bitcoin. Yeah. Really? This is my favorite <laughs> story of the week. It's, it's up there with the people, with the woman who paid for her husband to be assassinated in Bitcoin uh, from her own Bitcoin wallet without realizing. She was like, well, Bitcoin's anonymous, so nobody will know it was me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, I mean, uh, on John, on John McCaffrey, so I was actually in Belize at Christmas where he lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I heard all of the gossip, so we actually went to his house oh, and we tell. like. So oh. I, it was, it was something because the thing is that he actually tried to do a lot of really good stuff. So I think a lot of his madness actually comes from that period of his life where he went to Belize and he literally was almost killed, yeah. right? So when you go to the country and you see how it operates and you kind of hear from the locals what he tried to do in the community and basically doing a lot of very efficient things that the government was very against. I feel for him, right? I think he's really trying to to do something good. It's obviously he's going, he sounds a bit cray-cray, but when you hear that he was literally almost killed and then they killed his neighbor by accident right. and you see so his house, funny. That is not funny. but it's a real thing, right? So I, I don't know. I, I feel for him. I'm hoping that wherever this ends up, it will be positive because uh, respect to him because he, he's trying to do something good. You're the only person we've ever had the podcast who has given a balanced view of McAfee and I really respect that because we, we use him as a clown far too often. I, I just I just, I just often think with this one back in 1993 when I was installing McAfee tools on my Windows 92. I know what would it have been oh, at that point? No idea. I've lost 1990. <laughs> well, when was the World Cup? 66. <laughs> so. <laughs> so that's your reference point, there. So I'd have been 47 at that point. <laughs> yeah, your maths is really bad. <laughs> no, but I feel bad. Yeah, because seriously, like the Belize people that actually knew him and that were around there, they they had a lot of respect for him. So they were saying things did not end up very well, but you know, he tried to do something good. So I I like him. I'm I'm pro. It's he's a bit crazy, but you know why not? On that note, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all our guests. Guys, where can people find out more about you, Diana? Our website, suede.org. Come and check us out and ask for demos. And always very happy to talk about RegTech in general. Sounds good. Sean? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at the Reg Doctor or check out rtassociates.co for RegTech Associates. David? Um, at David Breer on Twitter. Sarah? I'm not very exciting either, at Sarah Koshansky on Twitter. And as for me, um, do feel free to drop me an email, rossgert at 11fs.com or at rossgallagher07 on Twitter. Do join in the discussion on fintechinsidernews.com or tweet us at fintechinsiders. Do remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode and to really make our weeks, leave us a review. We really do love reading them. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.